episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Karen's Therapy and Nutrition. Karen's Therapy and Nutrition, specializing in EMDR therapy for the treatment of trauma, food, weight, and body concerns, now offering virtual and in-person sessions. Visit therapy. T-H-E-R-A-P-Y dot com for more information or to schedule a consultation today. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Mia Rolden, Licensed Clinical Social Worker and Licensed Clinical Dependency Counselor, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty the intersectionality of eating disorders and gender diversity. Welcome to the show, Mia. Thank you, Noah. I'm happy to be with you. I'm happy to have you on. Um, you know, you and I had had met previously a long time ago, just before the pandemic, I believe. Um, and it's uh, really great getting to, to follow up with you and uh, your work. Um, so tell us, what are your credentials and experience? So I have an LCSW that I've had since 2014. I um, worked as a school mental health professional in East Williamson County, like Taylor, Elgin, Copeland. Um, I've been um, a a social worker in hospital settings in the ICU and the emergency room. And my current job of about two years is in an outpatient specialty clinic. And um, the reason why I have the licensed chemical dependency counselor credential is because I primarily have always worked with adolescents and drug and alcohol dependence is such a huge factor um, Mm -hmm. that I decided to get that credential. Plus it was a whole lot easier than the LCSW. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us, what is the name of the clinic that you work at? So I work at, the, at a clinic called the Adolescent Medicine Clinic. 
It's part of the Dell Children's Medical Group. We are, we are an Ascension clinic. Um, we do see patients of all ages, but primarily we do work with adolescents. And it is specialty for endocrine and reproductive medicine. So we see patients who have eating disorders. We see patient, female patients with reproductive issues of one kind or another. And then we see patients who are transgender and looking for some medical um, transitioning with hormone therapies. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so at, at the... The Adolescent Medicine Clinic, is that the name of it? Is, is, yes. Did I get that? Okay. Um, do you all accept insurance? And if so, if you know which ones, that would be helpful. Yes. So our clinic takes a lot of different uh, insurance. We have all different types for Blue Cross, Aetna, Humana, um, United Healthcare. Those are the, the bulk of the main private ones. We also accept Medicaid and STAR and CHIP and, and the Dell Seton um, Medical um, for Kids. And so we do take a lot of, of insurance. Um, we can do um, obviously private pay, which, which no one really does here at our clinic. They, they might from time to time, but um, Ascension also has um, medical assistance. And so if someone needs help, there's the hospital system set up to do that as well. Okay, great. Do you know, um, just kind of asking for myself and my clients, do you know if that financial assistance would extend to like adults who are seeking hormone therapy? Yeah, the financial assistance is for any patient of any age. Sweet. Okay, no matter what awesome. they're coming to the clinic for. Well, that kind of answers my next question about reduced fee or sliding scale. Um, I'm sure in the clinic, you're probably limited by the hours of the clinic. So you likely don't have any weekend or evening appointments. Is that fair to say? That's correct. We're a regular kind of Monday through Friday clinic um, hours. And I only function as a therapist in the clinic for our patients. I don't see right. anyone outside the clinic. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, now a little more about you. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? It was not. My first career was a special ed teacher, always with elementary aged kids. Um, I loved that work. And the kids that I always saw were kids, honestly, with mental health disorders. You know, I, I didn't work with learning disordered kids. Um, they were always the kids that had, you know, um, ED, um, emotional disturbance as their quote designation, which really meant a mental health disorder, depression, anxiety, trauma, like all of the above. And so I quickly became very frustrated in the school district's attitude of like, here, just fix this kid, make them stop doing whatever the behavior right. is for class so they can sit there and get the information. And then once uh, former President Bush passed the No Child Left Behind Act and special ed kids were required to take the state mandated tests, then the focus also became like, 
they need to pass the test. They need to do well, you know, do whatever you need to do to get them to do that. Well, I can't really write behavioral goals that extinguish (laughs) mental health conditions. So I just quickly got frustrated and could really care less if my kids excelled in reading and writing or passed a state test. And I thought this is, this is not for me. I still want to work with kids and, and families really, but not in this academic capacity. So I left I went to UT, I got my master's in social work and decided to go the route of being a clinical social worker to be able to still work with the whole family, you know, work with an interdisciplinary team. Um, And so I love what I do because I, I work with a whole team of experts all on the behalf of a patient and the family. And uh, we all have our role, we all have our expertise, but then we collaborate and help, you know, each other. So awesome. that's how I came to be here. Yeah, I can definitely understand why you would get frustrated with that. I, I probably would have felt the same way. Yes. <laughs> um, well, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, what are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you listen to, pets, kids, you know? Yes. Um, so I... I'm originally from California, but I've lived in Austin more than half my life, half my life. So I feel like an honorary Texan. Um, I am married. I have two sons that are uh, 14 and 19. Um, I, um, we, my husband and I originally moved here because he was a music manager. So music is a huge part of my life. Um, I also love um, to dance. And I am in a dance group called Sass and Strut, which you can find online. Sass and Strut is a, is an all female empowered, uh, group and we perform locally. Um, so shout out to them. Um, my, my other hobbies are, I love to travel. Um, I love to, do a lot of mental and physical self-care. So movement of any kind. Um, I try to practice what I preach, you know, honestly to my patients. We all do. Right? So, <laughs> um, I have not currently in therapy, but I've been in therapy. I, you know, do meditation. I do whatever I can to take care of myself. Um, I love cats. If I could be a cat lady with a million cats, I would. So <laughs> cats are my thing. Um, but I feel like since the pandemic and everything that's happened in the last couple of years, um, you know, my, my focus and shift has really been on keeping the things around me that, that matter and being able to let go and say, you're not good for me or this isn't good for me. And so I've been really trying to, to honor that. And, um, you know, if I need to be by myself and have quiet time, I do. And if I need to be, you know, doing some activity, like last weekend, I went roller skating because I, nice. I love that. So, you know, just trying to, to listen more to my inner voice. Just curious, quads or inline? Oh, quads. Got oh, hell yeah. I still hell have my yeah. roller skates from when I was younger and you know in the disco roller skating 
era. I still have That's them. Awesome. They still fit. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm all about the quads. I did roller derby for a very brief period of time. And I just, there's nothing like quads to me versus yeah. inline. I just, something about, I don't know if my ankles aren't strong enough or something for inline. I just can't get down with it. I just love quads so much more. Yes. Um, yes. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Um, sounds like you have a lot of cool things you like to do. I do. I do. And so when you work with clients, what modalities do you tend to draw upon? So my, you know, foundation is really coming at it from a strengths perspective with my patients. Mm -hmm. I always have. And that's what I would do, you know, honestly, as a special ed teacher, I want my patients to be able to understand that they do have strengths. They do have characteristics founded in resiliency, whether they realize it or not. And so, um, you know, I always do some psychodynamic because you have to get the, the background, you have to get the relationships and the childhood and all of those foundational pieces in line. Um, I, was asked to be trained in DBT dialectical behavioral therapy for this job. So I did, but I don't really believe that DBT works one-on-one. -on -one. I think it's much better taught in a group setting, practiced in a group setting. So if my totally patients, agree. yeah, if my patients have had it and they know the skills, then I use it. If not, I'm, I'm not going to teach someone one-on-one -on -one about DBT. Um, I love CBT. I use trauma-focused CBT because a lot of my patients have a trauma and or PTSD background. Um, but working with patients who have eating disorders, it's 100% essential to include the family. So there's always a family dynamic to what I do. I'm, I don't call myself a family therapist, but at the clinic, I will often have family sessions where parent, caregivers, you know, whoever comes in so that we can kind of process something that's going on specific for a few sessions. Um, I have gotten trained in EFFT, which is emotional family focused therapy. Dr. Adele France is a co-founder and I love that modality. It really works well, again, to incorporate parents and caregivers into the therapeutic setting and the healing process. Um, I also like uh, Donna Jackson Nakawaza, N-A-K-A-Z-A-W-A. She's um, someone who's written a lot on trauma in the brain, and she has a new program called Neural Rewriting. So writing um, as the basis for processing your trauma and I've gotten trained on that. And um, another foundation, going back to what I said at the beginning about a strengths perspective is narrative therapy. I believe strongly in that. And that's a huge component of my work here with my patients, journaling, journal prompts, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, that is kind of my cornucopia of modalities that I use. It's quite a, a lot of different things. Um, a couple of them I hadn't heard of before, um, but, but I'm curious, what got you interested in, in working with eating disorders? Well, 
I wasn't um, familiar really. I had not worked with individuals with eating disorders that I knew of. Now, in retrospect, I think I, I did have those patients, but I had never worked with them before. And um, the opportunity to work at this clinic and work with Dr. Maria Monge, who founded the clinic, who's just a huge advocate for transgendered individuals and the only specialty um, specialist, I should say, MD for eating disorders in all of Central Texas. So the opportunity to work with her in her clinic was just a no brainer for me. And so I did everything that I could to learn about eating disorders and dive into all the literature that's out there. And um, I had worked with uh, patients within the LGBTQ population. So that was, that was good. And then I was of course comfortable with working with adolescents, but I had not worked with eating disordered patients before. And I'll have to say in my life experience and my professional experience, I have never worked with a mental health disorder that's more difficult than eating disorders. And I, I agree with that. Yeah. I explain it to people because this is the realization that I had, which is an eating disorder is like a cult. You know, the patient has pledged complete and utter allegiance to an entity that is convincing them that if they do these things, there's this great reward of happiness and everything is great. And the individual gives up, you know, everything that is a protective factor, everyone in their support system for that promise that the eating disorder is giving them. And, and you, you, you cannot penetrate that. Like the average recovery for persons with eating disorders is seven years. And that is if they even choose to engage in eating disorder treatment and, and recovery. So, um, it's very similar to drug and alcohol addiction. You know, it's something that is numbing the pain, something that is making them feel in control, something that is distracting them from their pain. And why would I give that up? So um, it's, I have very, very tough clients, very sick clients, and it's very difficult work. Yeah. Yeah. Eating disorders, um, are probably one of the only only populations that I don't treat because I don't feel that I have the experience necessary to address it because I think it is so complicated and complex and, and just difficult to treat all around. Yes. And while I agree with that, I, I do feel like if you are a therapist that... Um, how should I say this? Like if you're a therapist that works with trauma um, and patients who have um, dependence issues or addiction issues, I'd say that you're competent to work with a patient with an eating disorder. And a lot of our patients that see therapists um, in the community will say, I don't think I can see, I can work with this patient anymore. I, I don't work with, you know, people who have eating disorders. I don't know about them. And I would rather a patient who's in a, you know, good therapeutic relationship with their therapist stay with them 
then have that patient have to start all over again. And so I right. do a little bit of consulting work with community therapists if they need it um, to kind of give them some tools or guidance, whatever I can offer in terms of the eating disorder. But really, um, if you are a trauma-informed therapist and have CBT under your belt, like I say, you can work with an eating disorder patient because it, it's just, it's about that trauma and the, and the accompanying anxiety and depression that you're going to mm-hmm. be talking about. Well, that makes me feel a little better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so jumping into the topic here, um, just to kind of operationally define some things, um, can you give us a little bit of information about what is considered an eating disorder and what the common characteristics of eating disorders look like? Yes. So just to remind everybody that an eating disorder is a mental health diagnosis. It is not a physical um, diagnosis, although, of course, my patients are in this clinic for the medical complications due to their right. eating disorder. And so our medical providers here will not give the patient the diagnosis of an eating disorder. They, the medical diagnosis is imbalance of constituents of food intake. So a fancy way of saying an eating disorder. Right. Um, so in the DSM-5, um, there's a few different ones that I can speak to, but basically um, an eating disorder is going to be a range of irregular eating behaviors and thoughts. And much like, um, you know, any diagnosis that you have, you think about the severity, the frequency, and the duration of those symptoms. And so um, eating disorders are going to comprise, you know, dieting, anxiety about foods, food groups, um, a lot of body weight, body shame, um, distorted thinking, um, because the eating disorder is providing a sense of air quote control for the patients. Um, it's a very, um, rigid and routine based, um, thought process around food and exercise. There is a lot of feelings of guilt and shame associated with, with food, with eating, um, and, looking for other behaviors to propel the eating disorder, like um, excessive exercising, restrictions, fasting, or purging. And so that then leads to the mental health diagnosis. So anorexia nervosa, which is when you are extremely restricting your food, that diagnosis has the highest mortality rate of any mental health diagnosis, which says a lot. Yeah. Do you know what that rate is by chance? Yes. So I have found in my research, it's anywhere from six to 10%. Wow. That's really a significant number. Huge. Huge. Yes. Um, The next diagnosis is bulimia nervosa, where it's a cycle of binging and purging. Um, Purging can be um, forced vomiting, but we see a lot of patients with laxative abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, The next one is binge eating disorder, which 
uh, in the United States is the most common of eating disorders. And that just speaks to our culture of right. um, fast food and processed foods. Um, then there's kind of the, the, the catch-all diagnosis called other specified eating or feeding disorder. OSFED is the acronym which kind of encompasses individuals that don't meet a strict diagnosis criteria for anorexia or bulimia, but they still, it's, they still meet criteria for a significant eating disorder. The next one is called Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. That acronym is ARFID, which is a newer diagnosis in the DSM that was previously referred to as Selective Eating Disorder. So ARFID is similar to anorexia in that someone with um, ARFID um, limits the amount of food and or food types that they consume. Um, ARFID usually does not involve anything about body shape or size or being having a fear of fat. It's really um, being very particular about the amount of food that that's eaten and the types of food. Well, that's um, common in people who are autistic, right? Yes, that's right. Because of um, the, you know, with people on the spectrum, that rigidity and um, trying to have this linear thinking of food. So yes, that's true. Um, PICA, P-I-C-A, that's an eating disorder that involves eating items that are not typically thought of as food and have no nutritional value. Um, and rumination disorder is one, it's um, an individual who regularly, regularly regurgitates food. And PICA and rumination disorder, we've never treated that I know of in, in our clinic. I don't have any patients with, with those disorders. Um, there's some other conditions that are not in the DSM, but are um, disorders in, a, in and of themselves nonetheless. Um, one of them is diabulimia. And so that's a person who's diagnosed with um, diabetes type one or type two that is purposely restricting their insulin in order to lose weight. Um, orthorexia. Um, is a term meaning someone who has an obsession with proper or healthful eatings. Um, individuals with orthorexia typically have OCD because it is kind of this compulsion to eat um, only healthy foods. And so a lot of our patients who want to be vegan or raw foods only or paleo, you know, those kind of I'm going to call them fads. I know they're not, but you know, they are very restrictive because they're trying to adhere to that, but it's in that obsessive kind of a way. And then laxative abuse. You know, we have a lot of patients that regularly abuse laxatives, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. That's a, uh, you added some ones uh, there at the end that I hadn't heard of before, like the, the one regarding type diabetes and the restriction of insulin. Yeah. That also sounds like a, like almost like self-harm. Well, so I would argue that anyone that has an eating disorder is engaging in right. not only self-harm behavior, but suicidal behavior. 
Right. I mean, it's, it's a fatal disease as, as any untreated, you know, mental health condition can be, but you are literally depriving yourself of nutritional benefits that feed every organ and every system in our body. And right. you, you, yes, I, I'm going to say you you slowly are killing yourself. So, yeah. Okay. So thinking about the variety of eating disorders that you just mentioned, what are some ways in which eating disorders can impact an individual? Um, and, and how do you go about assessing for disorder eating? So the assessment is, you know, you want to look at how it's affecting a person's daily functioning. So, you know, I go back to those three criteria of frequency, severity, and duration. Is the person able to function at work, at school with this, these eating disordered, you know, behaviors and thoughts? Um, do they have excessive worry or anxiety? Um, and how does that impact their life? Um, what kind of coping skills do they have? Um, what is their preoccupation with diet and exercise? Um, have they recently lost or gained a lot of weight? Um, what is their concentration and focus like? What are, what are their um, ADLs like, their you know, hygiene? So um, it's just you know, the overall functioning and how it's affecting them. Um, I will say in the context of COVID and our quarantine, that it's more difficult to assess because everyone is kind of compromised in their daily functioning, whether that's social life, work life, school life. Um, so, but you just have to look a little bit more closely under the microscope of the, the signs and symptoms for disordered eating, um, which are, you know, basically that they are, um, restricting, which deprives them physically and psychologically, and that they set up these, you know, rules for themselves around food, around eating, um, which of course doesn't allow for any modifications. So they break the rules by, you know, eating, overeating, binging, whatever, then they feel guilty, they're confused, it increases their, you know, self-hate, honestly, um, and then they go back to the diet and restriction. So you look for patients that kind of have that cycle. That makes sense. What are some examples of how disordered eating, such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder impact us physiologically? So um, you really cannot have any system in your body not be affected when you have an eating disorder. Um, the main systems that are affected are going to be your digestive system, the gastrointestinal, um, the neurological system with your brain and the endocrine system. So the function of um, your regulation of body um, temperature. Um, when we look at our 
patients, um, some of the, I'll call them kind of red flags that we see for them are um, that they are extremely dehydrated. They will tell us about, you know, standing up and getting dizzy to, to blacking out, to passing out. Um, across the board, our patients are constipated, have a lot of GI issues, may have been to a GI, you know, specialist for a consult. Um, for women, they're going to have irregular, you know, menses or an absence of it altogether. Um, also across the board, you know, weakness, fatigue, excessive, you know, sleeping all the time. Um, they have a intolerance for cold. They'll com frequently complain about how cold they are. Um, there can be um, loss of hair um, or just hair thinning. Um, I guess insomnia. So it's either excessive fatigue and sleep or insomnia. We have a lot of patients with insomnia. So then they might go the route of well, I've been to a, you know, a sleep doctor and I did a sleep study. And so, um, so those are the, the main ones. So you described some like physiological red flags. What about behavioral red flags that a client may be struggling with an eating disorder? Right. So it's going to be um, a couple of different categories. So in terms of exercising that, you know, that, that it's compulsive, you know, they're, they're never taking a day off. They're doing, um, you know, hours at a time, multiple times a day. Um, a lot of my patients tell me like, I just have to come home and like pace and it's just like part of my process and, or I shake my legs or, you know, they, you know, do sit-ups in their room at night, you know, when their parents think they're asleep, they do jumping jacks, that kind of a thing. Um, in terms of food, you know, it's, they're either eating an abnormally large or small amount of foods. They could be preoccupied with their foods and their calories. You know, we have our apps on our phones and, you know, all the things that can track what we're eating and our calories weighing themselves multiple times a day, not just daily, but multiple times a day. Um, you know, using, like I've talked about laxatives or diuretic pills, appetite suppressants, or um, excessive caffeine intake, you know, the monster drinks, you know, all those kinds of caffeine loaded uh, beverages. Um, someone who somewhat suddenly becomes, you know, vegetarian or vegan, or, you know, I'm going to be gluten-free or, you know, any kind of sudden change in their, in their eating habits or diet. Um, someone who very, you know, very, very closely adheres to the nutritional labels, you know, stays under a certain number of, of calories is constantly, you know, going online to either YouTube videos and watching those of people who are basically promoting eating disorders that I know of, the ones I've seen, or just Googling information that is not correct, but just endorsing 
this disordered eating, you know, thoughts. Um, so those are the, the main ones. Um, you know, I, I would say it's also, you know, talking about the sense of control that they feel when they engage in those behaviors, um, kind of this allegiance that they have to the eating disorder um, will, will be communicated, you know, in terms of like, I feel so much better when I exercise, when I, you know, when I cut this food group out, you know, just kind of the correlation between the sense of like, I feel better because I'm engaging in these behaviors. Um, and there's a lot of, um, you know, comparison to others, you know, they'll talk about comparing their bodies, you know, to people on social media, to family members, to whoever my sister, you know, doesn't have to eat the way that I do, or my sister can wear whatever, you know, so there's just a lot of body comparisons to, you know, people online, like I said, or real people in their lives. Okay. Now, eating disorders are often co comorbid with other disorders, such as anxiety disorders, mood disorders, PTSD, BPD, and substance abuse. However, eating disorders are also a major concern within, within the LGBTQIA plus community, especially in clients who are trans or gender diverse. Can you give us some statistics on how the LGBTQIA community is impacted compared to the general population? Yes. Um, so our transgendered youth are four times more likely to suffer from an eating disorder. And, and they are found to be twice as likely to engage in purging. 15% um, of gay and bisexual men and almost 5% of heterosexual men had a full or sub-threshold eating disorder at some point in their lives. Wow. Um, transgendered college students um, report experiencing disordered eating approximately four times the rate of their cisgender classmates. And uh, black and Latino, lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals have at least as high a prevalence of eating disorder as white, lesbian, gay, bisexual uh, individuals. Um, the LGBTQ, you know, has additional risk factors for um, eating disorders because they have, you know, discomfort uh, with or a fear of their body changes that don't align with their gender identity. And um, they, you know, are going to internalize all of those negative messages or beliefs about themselves due to their gender identity. Um, of course, our transgender patients, the majority of them, I would say, have experienced, um, you know, bullying, discrimination based on their gender identity, which then feeds into the trauma, which then feeds into, you know, an eating disorder. Um, they have, you know, this underlying fear of rejection of being accepted in their gender identity. Um, and if they, um, you know, are a transgendered male, you know, they're going to have a lot of obvious, you know, 
female characteristics and hormones that you know, increase their gender dysphoria. Um, and so they might potentially want to restrict their caloric intake to stunt their breast growth, reduce their hips, eliminate menstruation. Um, and transgendered, you know, females are going to want to, we've seen engage in eating disorders to accentuate their femininity and increase their ability to be perceived as a cisgender women. Um, you know, and there's just within the LGBTQ um, community, there are, you know, characteristics that they want to align with and be accepted with that they don't feel like they are. And so they look to the eating disorder to be able to, you know, manipulate their bodies to conform and be more, more comfortable. Um, and so, you know, there's body image ideals that they're trying to meet um, within that LGBTQ context. I think uh, another thing that plays into it is just, you know, uh, you know, as somebody who is a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, you know, we face a lot of judgment from people. And I think a lot of times what happens is we internalize that judgment and we judge ourselves much, hard, much harsher because we know we are already being harshly judged, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, we see that in the context of our clinic with patients when they come in with their parents and the parents are you know, anywhere on the spectrum of being supportive to not supportive of their child's right. identity. Um, and like you said, you know, our patients in the community are, are already getting those messages, especially in Texas, that they are not valued, they are not okay. Um, and then they come here knowing that we can provide some sense of relief by starting hormone therapy and the parents are not willing to, you know, engage in that. And it just um, reinforces that they're already feeling, like you said, those internalized beliefs that they're not good enough, that they're, they're never going to, to be happy. They're never going to be supported and, um, and accepted. Um, and I think definitely not here at our clinic, but I think that there is, a lack of culturally competent people in the medical world. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely um, and unfortunately. <laughs> yes. From mental health to physical health professionals. Like, you know, it just, it's really important that you find um, a therapist, a doctor, PCP, anybody that is going to be culturally competent and supportive of the LGBTQ mm -hmm. community. And I'm starting to get a little bit clearer of a picture as to why CBT would be especially helpful with this population because of the rigid thinking that plays into it. Right. So, you know, I just pull out all the time my handout of distorted, you know, cognitive oh, yeah. <laughs> all the time we go through that, you know. Um, where is the evidence for this thought? Does right. this thought help you meet your goal? Like we just, 
ad nauseum, you know, I go through that and try to get the patients to replace those thoughts, those automatic thoughts so that they don't lead to those behaviors. And, um, and it's really difficult. Um, like I said, if the patient's not living in a home that's supportive or encouraging, um, if they're not feeling like they're supported at school, if they don't have a social group, um, and again, I'm going to repeat myself and go back to, and so within the context of COVID and being locked down and virtual right. school and all of that, it's just been horrible for our youth. It's just been so bad. And the gender dysphoria, you know, spikes with, well, my teacher is making me keep my camera on and they'll tell me that I won't pass if I, you know, which I know is not true. Um, and it's just been really, really challenging and really frustrating for all of our patients, but especially our, our transgender patients. Um, yeah. That isolation, you know, it was like at first early on in 2020, when we were in lockdown, it was like, oh, great. I don't have to go to school. I don't have to, you know, leave my house. And that very quickly turned to like, oh God, I'm with my parents all the time and I don't get to see my friends. And it has been- Especially when parents aren't affirming if you're spending more time with parents. Exactly. Um, And then it, you know, allowed for, well, I can engage in my eating disorder because I don't ever have to eat and I just stay in my room and no one's holding me accountable and no one is seeing me face to face. And it's been, it's been rough, Noah. (laughs) It's been a long 18 months. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. This question is kind of out of my own curiosity. Is there any data on whether eating disorders appear to be more prevalent in trans folks who are femme versus masculine leaning? That's a great question. And I, that's probably a better question for Dr. Mon. She would probably be able to answer that. I haven't seen, um, leaning really one way or another. Um, you know, what I, unfortunately, there is not a lot of research and data on transgender and eating disorder (laughs) or communities of color and eating disorder. Um, so. Okay. Now, my understanding of the treatment of eating disorders is that generally it's a team approach. Um, what type of professionals or people are generally on these teams and what purpose does each of them serve? So a treatment team, when you have an eating disorder, is a lot of people, but that's a good thing. Um, so it's going to be a physician. So whether that's your primary care doctor or your nurse practitioner or your OBGYN or here at the clinic, if you're at a specialty clinic. So you're going to have a medical person on board. You're going to have a lot of times a psychiatrist for medication management. And that's for those comorbid uh, diagnoses of depression and anxiety, which I'll just say across the board, everyone with an eating disorder has to some degree. Um, A therapist, counselor, psychologist, someone who can do some psychotherapy with you. And I will say a family therapist, you know, I recommend probably 
80% of the time to my patients that they see a family therapist in addition to me. And that's a lot of therapy, I know. And I say, <laughs> no, that's a lot of therapy. But when someone has an eating disorder, the whole family experiences it, the whole family system, whatever that is. An eating disorder, because we eat three times a day, we have family meals together, hopefully, you know, food is a part of our daily life. So if someone has an eating disorder, then everyone is experiencing some factor of that. So family therapy, um, you want to have a dietitian, but they need to really be familiar and or trained with eating disorders because it's something that they need to be affirming and have the education to understand. So I would say more than a therapist, it really is important that your dietitian is trained and familiar with eating disorders, more, less so than your therapist for the reasons we talked about prior. Um, for the, our patients who are, you know, still in high school, middle, middle school, high school, maybe that's the school nurse, you know, to give you some information. Um, and then the parent, you know, like I said, with psychotherapy modalities, I use ones that involve family systems, you know, therapy, and then a family therapist, you need to have that parent be on board. They need to be the accountability partners, they need to be on our team to be supporting and encouraging our medical and, you know, psychological recommendations that we give to the patient. Um, one other possible therapist would be um, EMDR. If someone is, you know, seeing an EMDR therapist, which I have recommended that to some of my patients that they do EMDR and see me, which again, I know it's a lot of therapy, but if someone is ready to do EMDR, they're at a place with their trauma where they can do that, then I recommend that. But that's yeah. probably less, less frequent, but I have recommended it. And you've mentioned quite a few different types of therapies today, you know, just kind of speaking from a, a research perspective, what sorts of therapy have been found to be helpful, the most helpful for treating eating disorders? And then I want to add here as well that um, it's super important for people who are members of the LGBTQIA plus community to have providers who are affirming and competent as well. Um, I just feel like I need to add that little disclaimer there. Yes. Um, yes. But, but talk to me about the, the different types of therapies and, and what research shows. So I'll just say first, you know, our clinic keeps a you know, running list, which you are on, of therapists in the community that are transgender affirming and allies because I can't see everybody. And so we do have to refer out. And so we want to make sure that our patients are going to someone in the community that's specializes and or is affirming. Um, so the psychotherapy modalities, um, you know, are, are the ones that I have that we've kind of touched on already. Um, the, the CBT with getting at the you know, distorted beliefs and attitudes about the meaning of weight and shape and your appearance. Um, psychodynamic 
trying to get at the root causes that underline the motives that fuel the eating disorder and to help the, the patient understand, you know, what needs or need were not met that they, that they believe the ED to be providing. Um, DBT, it's, it's great because it's that highly skills-based treatment that when someone has, you know, an eating disorder, it's going to challenge those, um, you know, maladaptive behaviors and thoughts um, through learning about mindfulness and emotional regulation and distress tolerance. Um, you know, I, across the board for all my patients, you know, recommend, like I said, journaling and grounding techniques and coping strategies because you know, so much of an eating disorder is based on denial and secrecy and shame and avoidance. Um, and, and if they have a, a trauma background that you do the same thing, you, you avoid, you, you don't deal with it. So, you know, being mindful to be in the here and now be present, be able to tolerate the triggers, the flashbacks, the, you know, everything that, that, comes up when you have an eating disorder. So DBT is great, you know, for that. Um, and then the, the early emotional family focused therapy that I like the EFFT, um, much like trauma focused CBT, the parent caregiver is a part of, of the treatment. You have sessions alone with the parent, you have sessions um, to help them to be supportive in health-focused behaviors, um, helping the child to process what their underlying emotions may be that fuel the, the disordered eating behaviors and thoughts. Um, and then really, you know, repairing the relationship because there is always some discord between our patients with an eating disorder and their families of origin, you know, the parents, whatever. Um, there's some, you know, kind of blame and responsibility that the patient is putting on the parent, whether it's the parent's lack of attention and focus. So feeling like the child feels like they've been just disregarded and ignored by the parent or something overtly that the child feels like the parent, you know, didn't do and, you know, somewhat blames them um, and that just, you know, will halt their recovery. So. Right. Okay. Now, oftentimes, you know, you, you talked about the mortality rate of eating disorders earlier. And so depending again, like on the severity, frequency and duration, sometimes a higher level of care is required to stabilize an individual with an eating disorder. What are the different types of levels of care and what types of severity do they address? So um, treatment for an eating disorder is on a spectrum. And our clinic is called the outpatient team because we're an outpatient clinic and we are at the lowest level of care on that spectrum. So, you know, we're going to provide a patient who's medically and psychiatrically stable. They have their treatment team kind of in place already. They're able and willing to, you know, kind of cooperate, show up for visits, whether it's um, 
you know, every three months is kind of the typical schedule of check-ins. Um, they might also be asked by the medical providers to come <clears throat> and do what's called um, a weight check. They'll come and just get their weight and vitals and maybe some blood work so that we can kind of see what's going on behind the scenes medically with their eating disorder. Um, if that is not enough care, then the next step up from that would be an intensive outpatient program, which would be the IOP. And that's three to four hours a day, AM or PM. And that's anywhere from three to five days a week. Um, of course, a lot of the facilities that offer that are doing it virtually, which as much as I don't like virtual telehealth, you know, yeah. I think it works honestly in, in a lot of situations because if your kid needs to get somewhere three to five days a week, it's more helpful if they can just do it from home. And right. so I'm kind of torn um, and I have patients that feel, yes, that was great or I hate it. I don't want to be on camera anymore or have my laptop on a Zoom link anymore that I already have. But anyway, um, if the IOP is not enough, the next level up from that is partial hospitalization, PHP. So that's a full day, you know, six to eight hours a day, five to six days a week, where the patient is eating the meals there. They're usually eating at least lunch and dinner, if not all three meals. And then they just basically go home, sleep, Come back, repeat. The step up from that would be that they're in a residential treatment program. So a 24-7 supervised, highly structured, lots of therapy. Um, I will say with residential, PHP, and IOP, they are all doing family therapy um, as a component of the programming. And then for our patients who are really needing medical stabilization and sometimes you know that's putting in a feeding tube then they have to be inpatient in a hospital got it okay all right now regarding the intersectionality of eating disorders and gender diversity is there anything i didn't ask um that you think would be helpful for people to know um i feel like a lot of um, information needs to be more, more prevalent for our therapists on gender dysphoria and um, as well as body dysmorphic disorder, um, which is a DSM, you know, criteria, BDD. Um, and it's part of um, obsessive compulsive in the DSM. Um, and I think that's another kind of behavioral red flag that I would recommend that people, you know, really be familiar with. Um, body dysmorphic disorder is, you know, someone who has a preoccupation with one or more perceived body defects or flaws that are obvious to the individual, but really not so much to anybody else. Um, and the individual kind of engages in some repetitive behaviors about that flaw um, or mental acts like 
mirror checking, excessive grooming, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's the onset is about, you know, 12 to 13 years of age. Um, and so a lot of times if you have a body, um, dysmorphic disorder, it can lead to an eating disorder. Um, if food then and weight become part of, of that perceived flaw, um, of course, as with most things, um, all of this is made worse with social media and popular right. culture and society's body standards. And so um, just getting more education as, as in our therapy community about BDD would be important. Um, another aspect is to understand the body positivity movement, um, which kind of started in the early 2000s as a reaction to the kind of excessive diet culture um, that was really counteractive to, you know, feeling any kind of acceptance about, you know, who you are and, and the body that you're in. Um, we all know that dieting can, can and does cause a lot of physical and emotional distress. Um, but it really was not something that anyone in the medical community, I feel like, you know, took seriously. Um, and it's really, I think, you know, as a social worker, it's a social justice issue because, you know, individuals who are in a larger body or considered obese have always been marginalized and stigmatized because of their weight, which is known as weight bias or weight-based discrimination. Um, so the body positivity movement really started to kind of counteract that bias that people shouldn't be in a larger body. Um, and the components of it are, you know, feeling comfortable and confident in the body that you were born into, which for our transgendered folks is, is very difficult um, for many reasons, a lot of what we've discussed today. Um, and within body positivity, it's that notion that your physical appearance does not dictate, you know, your value, much less the number on a scale does not dictate, you know, your value. And so our clinic and our dietitian, our nutritional focus here is a shift from, you know, using a number on a scale and your BMI to determine whether or not you're healthy and whether or not um, you know, there's quote, something wrong with you. We don't use BMIs at our clinic here. When we have patients come in for the first time, because they're generally, you know, children and adolescents, we ask for all of their growth charts to be sent to us from their pediatrician so that we can look over time, their height and weight trajectory. What has that been like? Because that's, that's the science and the data that we want to really base our decision on in one way of, hmm, do they have an eating disorder or not? Um, and the body positivity movement is kind of a shift to being intentional and being mindful when you eat and really understanding what hunger cues are and what being full and those cues are. And understanding that, you know, your body needs a regular level of activity. Your body does not need to exercise. Exercise is a loaded 
value-based word. So what we say is focusing on regular physical activity, doing whatever you like to do that makes your body move, whether that's walking your dog, hula hooping, whatever it is um, that you want to do that makes you happy. And so um, you, you probably know this and many of your listeners, but so the HAYS movement, HAYS is an acronym that stands for health at every size. And it's hayescommunity.com that you can look up to get more information on it. But, um, you know, we want to give our patients a lot of psychoeducation and help them understand um, all of our patients, transgender patients, cisgender patients, that your body is determined by genetics and cultural traits. And whatever your ideal body weight is, that's the weight that's going to allow you to feel strong, have energy and allow you to be healthy. Okay. That was a lot of really good additional information. Thank you. Sure. So going back to you as a therapist, I don't think it's necessary to ask this question, but I'm going to do it anyway, because that's what I do. Um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? So I um, will kind of blow our own horn here at the clinic and say <laughs> that we do a great job of working with um, BIPOC and um, patients who are really compromised because of other factors that we will call social determinants of health. You know, all of those other factors that are going to impact their mental and physical health, that's their housing, income, food insecurities, documentation status, like everything, you know, we really make an effort to assess for those. Um, with every patient, every time. And so in addition to myself, we have another social worker here, Angelica Oskos, who does a lot more of the case management and work with our individuals when they have you know, barriers to care, barriers to access. Um, another reason why we're, we're able to do that is because we take Medicaid. Right. And that's the reason why my caseload is as full as it is, is because right. our patients cannot get therapy when they have Medicaid, not exclusively, but it's, it's a huge difficult. barrier. It's yeah. difficult. So um, we are, I feel like able to not only assess, but also to provide um, some help for our patients, you know, with our transgendered folks, we've partnered with um, the, um, I'm blanking on the name, but it's the, the, the law partnership um, at People's Clinic that they are able to give some legal help to their patients. So we've partnered with them when our patients want to do a legal name change and to help yes. them, you know, fill out those forms. Um, we help our patients if they want to pursue their GED, if they um, have food insecurities, I mean, like anything, you know, um, we will 
you know, any medical provider here will make a referral to Angelica and myself, and we will focus on those, those barriers and help as best we can. That's awesome. So a lot of people get really nervous before they have their first session with a therapist, right? Um, what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on a, an ongoing basis? So because most of my patients are minors, you know, my first session is, you know, I got my, I have my script and my, <laughs> I always say, you know, the confidentiality rules and what I, what I have to disclose and what I um, have to do by law. Um, but I really let the patient know that I am one person on their team. You know, they're not coming to me in isolation for therapy. They are coming to me because their medical provider is concerned. And so I'm completely transparent and upfront that the medical provider may share information with me that might help with my work and that I might share it with them, but I w never share anything without letting my patient know first. Like the patient's like, well, I don't want to eat lunch at school because I hate eating in the cafeteria. And I'll say, does your provider know that that's what's going on? I think we need to let them know, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I'm also very transparent and upfront with my patients that I think it's important to have parents come to sessions, not all the time, not for random things, but for specific issues that the patient and the parent just keep going round and round on, aren't getting anywhere with, or if there's something that they really can't say, but they know needs to be said. But again, I'll say to my patient, I'm not going to spring that on you. If we have your parent in here, I want your permission. I won't do it unless you're okay with that. And if they do come in, this is exactly what we're going to talk about. I'm not going to go off script. I'm just here to facilitate, you know, that conversation. So, you know, I'm very, my work with, with teenagers in schools all these years have taught me that, um, you know, the, the, the BS radar is always on. So I want to be, <laughs> I want to be truthful. I want to be upfront. Um, I tell them like, I'm a stranger. You don't know me. So here's some facts to get to know me. And I tell them, yeah, I used to live in California, like really the same stuff I told you at the beginning, Noah, you know, like I share my, myself with them and I say, you can ask me anything you want. Um, and then we, we deal with that if that comes up. Um, but I want them to know that my sessions, my office, me is, is a safe and private and, and confidential place. Um, so that's what they can expect. Um, I, I will say that for the most part, that works pretty quickly. Like that breaks the ice, you know, sometimes um, it, it takes a little bit longer, um, because they really don't want to be there. They don't want to be in therapy. And I've definitely said, and I do say like, if you don't want to do this, you don't have to, like, if you don't want to be here. I'm, I'm okay with that. And we don't have to have therapy. And why don't you go, you know, think about it, talk about it with your parents. You all let me know, like just very low stakes, you know, low pressure. Okay, cool. 
How would you say your clients describe or experience you? Well, um, I've, I've had patients tell me that um, one time they were surprised that I was so old because I, <laughs> I dress so, so fashionably. Like, I was like, okay. That's like a compliment and like a swat on the face. Yeah, a little bit. Again, that's the truth of adolescence, you know, no filter. Right. <laughs> Let it out. Um, I think that's a good question. I mean, how they would describe me. I think, you know, my office is filled with um, Hello Kitty, um, stuffed animals. Like sometimes I'm like, is this a little bit too elementary, Mia? What are you doing? But at the same time, like, <laughs> this is where I have to be every day, eight hours a day. So this place has to be comfortable for me. You know, um, I just bought a piece of art from a woman, um, whose, uh, website is bipolar, uh, Lily. Um, and she does artwork and she did this really great painting. And I was like, well, this is part of my office now, you know, and that's cool. So, yeah. Um, so, I always have food in my office too, snacks, water, you know, that kind of thing. Um, because we're an eating disorder clinic and eating right. is a normal thing. So if you want to eat, please go right ahead, you know, that kind of thing. So um, hopefully my, my patients would describe me as, you know, laid back and relatable. That's my goal. Okay, cool. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Yes, I will definitely laugh or cry with them. Um, I, um, I don't think I have cried with a patient, but I, um, I guess I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. It just hasn't happened. Um, I think I might, if I was being honest, probably say like, I want to create a safe place. And so if I were to cry, I might wonder if that's what I'm projecting and maybe I need to think more about that, you know, on my own. But, um, you know, I, again, I just, I want my patients to experience, you know, an hour where they feel safe and, and comfortable. And so I, I try to be as real as possible and, um, I don't know. I just, I haven't cried in front of them. Yeah. It's not something that comes up very often. Yeah. Yeah. Next is one of my favorite questions because I think we all describe different things, but we all mean the same thing, which is kind of why I like it. How do you define holding space for someone? So I really, um, let the patient dictate the pace and kind of cadence of the session. And if they are going to be quiet and not say anything, I can sit in that silence for a long time and I'm okay with it, but that's because I'm a therapist right. for my patient. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm, I can do this, but yeah, for us, that's like, okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but I know for them, 
I'm just going to say, I think it makes them uncomfortable because I know that they have this expectation of like, you're supposed to be talking. I'm supposed to be talking like what is going on. And so I'll, I'll say something, you know, I'll say like, it's okay if you don't want to talk. It's, you know, I, I want to normalize and validate the silence. Um, I'll kind of probe a little bit what I, what I think it means. And I, and I'll be just honest and say like, I'm not sure this is what the, what's going on, but is this how, you, you know, how you're experiencing the silence or something like that. So, um, you know, sometimes holding space means, um, I'm just going to say to my patient, like, do you need a hug? Cause I can just tell, um, that they are really very, very fragile in that moment. And because they've just disclosed something and I'll just say, do you need a hug? And the answer has always been a quick yes. <laughs> so I feel comfortable asking and giving a hug. Um, again, unfortunately in the context of COVID, like one time when I did that, the, the patient looked at me and I was like, oh, she really doesn't want to hug. And she was like, are you okay that we hug? And I'm like, oh, COVID, uh, you know, like, darn it. But we hugged anyway, but, um, <laughs> Good, I'm glad. <laughs> anyway, um, so my holding space is just letting them have the space that they need me kind of uh reading the room reading them um and yeah okay what's the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor the best advice was um a time when I was working at Capital Area Counseling because I was getting my LCSW hours and I was nearing to the end and I was going to have to be terminating with my patients. And this one patient, I was really like totally figuring out in my head how I could still work with her and see her and like, I'm just going to continue. And my supervisor, you know, said, well, is this for you or for her? Like, what is it that you feel like you need to do? Is this really in her best interest? And so that has always stuck with me because I, I do need to ask myself that question from time to time. Like, are my feelings that are coming up or my actions that I want to take motivated for me or for my client? And, um, I have to be careful sometimes, honestly, to, to, that I'm too close into that I'm going to take care of you zone. Um, because our, our patients, like I'm saying, have just a mountain of, of needs and issues and struggles. And, you know, I work with children because I had a hard childhood and adolescence and I can definitely relate. And so sometimes when I know that they're going back home to a home life that is not accepting and parents that really suck and I want to get mad at them. (laughs) So I really, I have to really monitor that and I rely on my coworkers and my, um, you know, clinical consultation that I do like to get those out to really be like, 
I'm not sure I should, whatever the thing is, you know, cause I just, um, I don't want to um, give that false sense of what I can and can't do for my patients. Um, I will say that two of my adolescent patients, well, one's an adolescent, one's in her twenties. I have given my cell phone to my cell phone number to, and I kind of made that executive decision early on because I knew the reality of their home life and their level of suicidality was such that I had to be one of the numbers on their safety plan. Um, and they do call me and they do text me. And sometimes it's late on a Saturday night. And, um, but it's also been a, ther a teaching therapeutic moment for them because that was a long time ago that I gave my number to them. And so sometimes I'll say, you know, you called me or you texted me, but in essence, what could you have done differently? Like, right. You know what I mean? There were skills and strategies you didn't engage in. And that's not my role. That's not why you have my number essentially is what I convey to them. So it's, right. it's, I feel like it's a therapeutic process of teaching them what you want to engage in when you need help and what you're defaulting to and trying to get them to understand their, their, their impulsive act actions in the moment. So. Yeah. And I just want to mention, you know, regarding checking in with yourself, I think every therapist has something like that, that, that we need to like monitor and check in with on, within ourselves because we all have our own shit too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, 100%. And I think, I think that just kind of comes with the territory and, and I'm glad to hear that you do that. Cause I, I have also heard of many clinicians who do not, do that sort of thing. So um, I think that's a very important thing to do as a therapist. Yep, absolutely. Um, what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Well, um, I definitely have learned that I need to be on a team. I need to be um, with supportive management, supervision, coworkers, like staff, like everything. Um, I am employed by UT Del Med. So I'm part of their integrated behavioral health team through the medical school. And it's awesome. The support there is just phenomenal. I can't, I can't say enough about that. So, but I work in an Ascension clinic, so I'm a contractor. But my, um, Dr. Monge is not my quote boss, but she, you know, whether she likes it or not, she's the leader <laughs> of our team. She's, she's the captain and we all default to her and her support is equally amazing and all inclusive. And so everyone from the medical assistants to the nurses, to everyone here. Um, so I've just learned like, I, I want to be on a team because I, I don't want the weight and responsibility of an individual's well-being in my lap. Like, I'm just not comfortable with that. That's just, that's why I'm a social worker and not a psychologist. So sorry, psychologists are out there. Like, <laughs> I just think we have to deal with um, 
a person in terms of everything that they engage with in their world and their life and incorporate all of our own individual expertise for their behalf. And so um, that's what I um, have learned about myself and what I've learned about the world is um, that you really, you as in we people, individuals, really have to find the thing that we're passionate about and advocate for it and vote for it and people that support that. And it really is very easily something I can be overwhelmed in because there's just a laundry list of things that affect my clients here and I can't address them all or else it just makes me crazy. So I have to really focus my effort and energy on the things that are closest to, to me and the work that I do. So that's, you know, LGBTQ uh, rights for sure here. Um, And, you know, advocacy for, um, you know, education, because that's where our kids spend the majority of their time for their young life. And so, um, our clinic works very hard to partner not only with therapists in the community, but all the school districts, all the mental health counselors, all the social workers, everybody, because that's where our kids are. And we want to, you know, direct our patients back to their school mental health counselor. And so, and Helen, I love that. Yeah. And Helen and I do our, our routine, our show and dance PowerPoint all the time in front of as many people in the community as we can to educate them about transgender and eating disorder and everything um, so that they have that level of comfort that if a student comes to them, they can, they can help and you don't have to, to be an expert in eating disorders. Okay. So when you finish a long, hard day of work, what is like the one thing you absolutely have to do for yourself for self-care, excluding eating. Don't say eating. (laughs) I know. Um, So what I have to do, what I should, sometimes what I should do. (laughs) Don't go shitting yourself. The shitting, (laughs) yes. No, I know. Um, Well, I mean, my my safe and happy place is my family, honestly. Um, my kids and my husband and my cat, even though he's kind of a dick. But anyway. Um, <laughs> a lot anyway, of them tend to be. <laughs> right? I know. I know. I've, I've been barred and banned for life from picking out our next cat because I always pick <laughs> out the assholes, apparently. Oh. Anyway, um, I have to come home and we have a family dinner. We have a a family meal and we sit around the table and we have a tradition that we say what we're grateful for. And if that's nothing more than it wasn't a hundred degrees today, then that's all you got. But like that, you know, it's, it's a grounding, it's become a habit. It's just what we do to just have, you know, eye to eye contact and, um, not talk about anything other than what we choose to talk about. And, um, 
you know, it's, it's one of the indicators, honestly, that it's kind of like a soft assessment here at the clinic. We ask our patients, like, do you guys eat dinner together? Like that one meal, that one ritual speaks volumes to honestly, if a patient, you know, has disordered eating behaviors, if the family unit is intact, like it's, it's not a lot of effort, honestly, you know, if you think about it and it really is, is a very grounding and safe, you know, thing to provide a family meal with everyone, even if it's like 15 minutes, you know? So for me, that's like the one thing that I, that I have to do every day. Um, so, yeah. Okay. I love that. Oh. How would you define happiness? Ooh. Wow. Happiness. Um, happiness, I think, is when you have the ability to honor yourself first, put you and your needs above everyone else and be able to do that without apologizing for that. And to be able to do that within the context of your family, your partner, whoever, and they want that for you too. Like they believe in that and they support that too. Um, because I have just learned myself the hard way that if, if I am not taking care of myself and putting me and my needs first, that I am no good in any other capacity in my life. And putting other people's expectations as, as mine, putting other people's needs as mine just never works, never has, never, um, does. never does. And so my own personal happiness has only come through understanding that I have to listen to myself when I say like, hell yeah, I want to do that. Or heck no, I don't want that. And I don't want that person in my life. And I, I don't have to do this thing. Um, when I can just honor myself, then I'm happy. And, you know, happiness is like resiliency, is like, you know, a, a practice or, you know, a muscle. The more you use it and flex it, the more automatic it becomes. And once you do that enough where you're honoring yourself enough and you get those positive benefits of like, Oh, that feels really good. <laughs> That's a good feeling. I like that. Then you remember that and you know, and become aware of like people that try and sabotage that. And you're like, you know what? Something inside of me is like kind of going off, you know, the, the, alarm, whatever the red flags, you're like, no, I don't think I want to do that, you know, and you begin to weigh your choices and your decisions more clearly because you very quickly can recognize like, oh, no, that's going to jeopardize my happiness if I do that, or I say yes to this, or I say no to that, like, I need to do this. It's a good answer. Yeah. 
that's what I got for happy. I hadn't I hadn't had anybody give me that one before, but I think that that is um, definitely really important to happiness for sure. Um, couple questions, and then we can wrap up here. Um, couple questions that are a little vulnerable. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? Hmm. Um, I think that, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing, but it's also just a, um, a, uh, I was going to say flaw, but that's not a good word. Uh, it's a challenge I have, um, remembering people's names and information, um, so I've called patients by their wrong name. <laughs> like, I know who they are, but like, you know, names are just right. hard for me. And like, so when I was a teacher, I could just be like, okay, sweetie. Okay. Like I wasn't, could get away <laughs> with it, you know, as an elementary teacher, I was like, okay, I don't know your name, but I know who you are. You know, that's not the thing, but if you don't call someone by their name, it makes them feel like you don't care and you don't know who they are. And, <sighs> So I've definitely done that in therapy or I've been like, wait, isn't your dad da da da? And they're like, um, no, my dad is, you know, lives here and I've never seen like, you know, like I've gotten the fact totally wrong and that's super embarrassing. So, and it just really is, you know, because every session, you know, we have to document, we have to take notes. And if I don't write it down, then I don't know, but I don't, I feel so awkward writing while a patient's talking to me and they're trying to read my writing upside down. Like, what is she, <laughs> you know, like, and so I try to like hold the paper up and like, that feels weird, you know? So it's just, I don't know if you have any tips, I don't know what to say, but like, well, I mean, I think we have to hold so much information all the time yeah. Um, that it would be unrealistic to expect we would remember everything all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I do do my documentation concurrently. Uh, I'm typing while my clients are wow. talking. So by the time my session is done, my notes done, I don't wow. have to sit there and work on it anymore. It's actually quite wonderful. And, and it's a really great way. I have ADHD, so it's a really great way for me to like fidget while meeting and helps keep me focused actually. Um, I love that. And then I don't have to spend, you know, five hours at the end of the week doing all my documentation. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Maybe I should try that. I never even thought of that. Um, it's, it's really not that difficult. Like you get into a flow of it. Yes, yes. Okay. And my yeah. clients, they, they tell me they appreciate it because they feel like I'm paying attention. I'm engaged uh -huh. and like I'm, you know, writing stuff down that way. I can remember for the next time. So I haven't gotten anybody who's been upset about it. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm totally going to try that because I do say like, I'm sorry, I have to write because I won't remember this and I have to, you know, put this in your med record, but I could make a better uh, explanation. And okay. I definitely recommend having like a template that you follow. Like I tend to do like a soap note type of, of deal. Um, yes. We have a, a template for behavioral health notes. So yeah, I can definitely do that. And then it just takes a little bit of setup. I always set it up, set up my document at the beginning of the day for all my clients for the day. 
That way I'm not distracted trying to set it up while I'm meeting with a client, you know? Okay. Love that, Noah. Thank you. Are you gonna use <laughs> Let, me know. Let me know how it goes. Okay. I will. I mean, okay. honestly, the medical providers come in with their laptop and they're doing the same yeah. thing. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, God, and, it's but, such a time saver. Oh my God. Oh, it really is. It changed my life when I started doing things that okay. way. Like, awesome. it's, it's worth it. And if you want, if you want, you know, if you do it and you, you notice that you're having some, you know, hard time with a certain aspect or something of it, send me an email. Maybe, maybe there might be something that I've come across before and found a way around it or something. Okay. Um, and this last question is something that you had kind of alluded to earlier on. I couldn't remember if you said you, you had been or you were, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Oh, yes. I've had a lot of therapy in my lifetime. Um, I've had great therapists and really bad therapists. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because... I always had uh, a woman, female, and my last therapist was a male and he was, he was the greatest. And I don't, I'm not saying just cause he was a male, but I think sometimes we get uh, in our heads, like I have to have a female or a male or I don't know what, but I think that's what I had been doing. And because I just assumed my issues were always with women and, and I do, but I got, I got male issues too. So it just, right. <laughs> it just helped. It just helped. But, um, I, I saw him for probably like one of the, one of the most crucial periods in my life where I was really lost professionally and personally and just completely untethered. And so I worked with him for, I think, like four years, right, literally up until last year during the pandemic, like we were supposed to have our last session in March of 2020. And we didn't because we canceled because of the pandemic. And then I just, I never, I have never contacted him since, but um right now I, I'm, I'm in a really good place um, mentally. And because he and I did so much work in those four years, um, I'm still kind of feeling the high off of that, honestly, but I have no problem going back to therapy in a heartbeat. Like I would do it any, any day that I chose to do it. So, yeah. Well, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Um, we covered no, a lot. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I am just really grateful for this opportunity to talk about our clinic and the work that we do here because we do really great work. Um, I see I've seen it. Yes, you knew know firsthand. Um, yeah. You know us. So I believe in my role um, as a 
community liaison and an advocate. So I am more than happy for anyone to reach out and contact me here at the clinic and get information or ask questions or all of the above. Um, I just and now I don't think that there is a website for the clinic. Is there? I haven't been able to find one. It's hard to find and it's not really a great website. Um, Can you give the clinic number? Yes. The main clinic number is 512-324-6534. Awesome. And you can ask for me, certainly. Because um, I just, I guess what I would want people to know, not necessarily about me, but like my opinion of, of being a good therapist is that you are number one, always learning. You are always learning, not just what you're interested in, but maybe things outside your comfort zone and that you are always networking, that you're always connecting to other people and agencies and whoever, cause you just, you just never know. And I feel like the more connections you have, the better you'll be at your, your own individual job. So. Part of why I started this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yep. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Mia. It's, it's been a real pleasure. And I thank appreciate you. all the work that y'all do at that clinic. Thank you. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Kimberly May, licensed professional counselor supervisor and licensed marriage and family therapist, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty, harm reduction approaches to substance abuse. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nextquestpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.